Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, I'll speak with newly appointed Smyrna Police Chief Keith Zegots as he talks about the increase in crime nationwide and how he views effective community policing. Having those lines of communication open is the first step in making sure that we're serving the community the way that they want to be served and that they're getting the level of service that they want. Also, a conversation with East Point Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram about the president's massive infrastructure bill and how she sees it helping a city like hers. Over 60 to 70 percent of our infrastructure is over 60 to 70 years old, right? So we are experiencing a lot of main breaks, repairs that are being needed. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first this, add former Atlanta Mayor Kasim Reed to the current mayoral candidates list. The Kasim Reed for Mayor Campaign Fund is now listed on the Georgia Campaign Finance Commission website. This brings the number of Atlanta mayoral candidates to now six. It is expected Reed will publicly announce tomorrow during his birthday celebration. In other news, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention right here in Atlanta cite age groups with higher vaccination rates have seen bigger drops in COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. The report from the agency says adults over 65 saw the largest drop in the early days of the vaccine rollout. CDC researchers tracked coronavirus infections, hospitalizations, and deaths from just late 2020 to spring of this year. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, who heads the CDC, says older Americans prioritized at the start of the vaccine rollout saw the biggest benefits. The report speaks to the potential impact of getting more people vaccinated across age groups. The CDC says nearly 52 percent of Americans have received at least one dose. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Recently, U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg was in Georgia to help sell President Biden's American Jobs Plan and how the projects and investments will hopefully create millions of jobs and also build or rebuild America's infrastructure. The secretary referred to cities like East Point as, quote, the future of transit possibilities, calling it a sense of imagination and vision. Well, join me now to talk about all of this from the city of East Point, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram. Madam Mayor, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rose, for the opportunity to be with you. I always enjoy spending time on Closer Look. Before we get into talking about the infrastructure needs for your city, let's begin with an update on the city of East Point as it relates to COVID-19. What do you know about the city's vaccination rate of residents right now? How are you all looking? So I think we're looking good. I know for the county, um, for all eligible um persons who can be vaccinated. It was around 47% at one point. I feel like in the city of East Point, our vaccination rates are decent too, because we actually have a site in the city of East Point weekly at Impact Church, um, where residents can come to receive their vaccinations. And, you know, for us, it's always about alleviating barriers. So while there are definitely other opportunities around the city, we feel like having opportunities in the city alleviates, of course, the transportation and access barrier. Um, and as we bring back Wednesday wind down on this um, June 23rd, the fourth Wednesday in this month, we actually will have vaccinations at the Wednesday wind down, all three vaccinations. Um, so Pfizer, Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. And then if people um, get vaccinated there, they can come back to our Wednesday wind down in July to actually get their second dose. So is the city of East Point, however, officially open for business? Right now, we have um, opened up our customer care department for every day. Um, and that started, I believe, was May 24th. On June 1st, we opened up our community and planning development department. 
to have people come in and be able to meet with staff. We will continue to have a phase reopening. I believe everyone should be back maybe about August. How are you feeling right now in terms of meeting that timeline and and all your employees? Are you all suggesting or mandating that they all be vaccinated? So we're not mandating that they be vaccinated um, because we can't do that, but we have strongly encouraged. And now that there are so many opportunities within the city, we've had like vaccinations at different churches throughout the last month or so. So there've been a number of opportunities for employees to be vaccinated. And one of the things that the city manager shared with me in the decision as he's looking at the phase reopening of city hall is there've been a number of opportunities in the city of East Point Um, I mentioned Impact Church, but a number of our other churches have had and continue to have vaccination opportunities as well that our employees can get vaccinated in the city if they want to. And so because of that increase in opportunity, um, we will he looks we feel that we're confident to be able to reopen um, with all staff back around August. Would you like for city employees to be vaccinated? Are you all looking at possible incentives? So I'm not, he hasn't mentioned um, incentives. I do feel like being vaccinated not only protects you, but it protects your family and the community. But I also understand that, you know, people have different concerns around vaccination. Um, We actually did a a, a, um, infomercial or video um, as mayor and council to encourage and, and people to vax up vax up East Point and it's worth a shot and all of us have been vaccinated. So we're doing, you know, things of that nature to really continue to encourage people and talk about how important it is. And the goal definitely would be to have more East Pointers vaccinated. And so we're just going to continue to have a number of opportunities within the city, because I also think that people like, while you might think you're not going to do it at some point, people change their minds. And whenever there's a change in mind, we want there to be an opportunity. Considering the racial demographics of the city of East Point and everything that we know in terms of the health disparities as it relates to COVID-19, high infection rates within communities of color, low-income communities, do you have some concerns for your residents? Yeah, it absolutely concerns us. And I think that's why we've been more conservative in like reopening our parks and other spaces because we are a city that is um, around 76, 78 percent African-American and our Hispanic population is almost up its double digit to around 10 percent. So when you talk about over 85 percent of your community um, being a community of color and the health disparities that are just known and implicit within that, um, I believe that that is definitely why um, our city manager has been, and he said it time and time again, why we are definitely conservative and reopening, like we just reopened our um, park and recreation center on June 7th. We just reopened our parks. Um, I think it was June 1st. So we've been extremely conservative in that because we are aware of our demographics. We are aware um, of the challenges or opportunities that that presents. And so that's why we've been extremely committed to making sure we have vaccination opportunities within the city to address any access or equity barriers But also, like I said, you know, some people start out saying they're not going to do it, but then they change their mind. And we want to make sure that there's an option in the city of East Point when there's a change of mind. Prior to the pandemic, we profiled you in a city in a three-part series back in 2018. Back then, you were optimistic as efforts were underway in redeveloping and rebranding. Then the pandemic hits in 2020. Um, But prior to that, were you all still on this path as you saw it in terms of East Point? experiencing this economic boom? Yes, and actually, Rose, I feel like we even continued during the pandemic. Uh, We were blessed in that we were able to have, you know, development still continue. There is absolute, there's actually a um, a total of about 21 acres right across the railroad track behind the MARTA station in downtown East Point called the East Point Exchange. And that development has continued to progress. And they're offering free space to our Market 166 co-op grocery store because being given the demographics that we have, which I think create amazing opportunities, we also have a food access challenge. Um, and so that private developer is committed to health and wellness and food access. And so offering free space, looking at potentially having a part of our um, East Point Path, which is a, a just under 25 mile path throughout the city. 
um, having that next mile go through that project to make it more walkable and, um, you know, more livable, more green space, as, including green space as well, arts and entertainment. So that has been moving forward. And in fact, that's one of the um, developments or areas that we share with Secretary Buttigieg when he came to East Point and we took him on a walking tour of our downtown. And so, and as we continue to walk over to look at the East Point Exchange development and back to City Hall, I share with him a number of opportunities. One, that we have over $326 million in infrastructure needs from water, sewer, and stormwater. And that, you know, we're trying to definitely make sure that we are accessing multiple revenue streams for that. So looking at the federal earmarks to make sure we can get some support through that, as well as President Biden's infrastructure plan. Um, I share with him, you know, the amazing opportunity to have an equitable transit-oriented development like East Point Exchange coming into the city, but needing the infrastructure to have put in place to be able to support the, the density that that development will bring. It will have about a little over 100, maybe 120 um, market rate housing apartment units, but also um, there's a developer on that site applying for low income home tax credits to be able to provide workforce development housing. So 89 units of workforce development housing on that site. And phase two might even include um, home ownership with, on the same site. And so that is, I think, the opportunity to really model equitable revitalization and redevelopment, but also how we can ensure that there's equitable infrastructure. And Secretary Pete, you know, shared with us the, his commitment around equitable infrastructure, meaning that we're looking at communities like ours and really trying to address um, those needs that we've had. Our aging infrastructure is not unique. Over 60 to 70% of our infrastructure is over 60 to 70 years old, right? So we are experiencing a lot of, you know, main breaks, repairs that are being needed. And we've been investing a little over $3 million per year through our capital improvement program to address it. But we need help. Again, it's $326 million. And so we um, just recently were awarded $5.4 million in GFA loans. Um, the governor signed the municipal option sales tax bill that -hmm. received bipartisan support, which would allow our residents to decide whether or not a penny should be tax sales tax should be imposed to help support our infrastructure needs. Um, We had Congresswoman Williams. Um, She came and toured the city. We showed our water treatment facility as well as our reservoir and had some rich conversations with her and sent her as well as um, Secretary Pete and Secretary and Senator Ossoff and Warnock came on that walking tour as well. They all went away with a package of projects from the city of East Point, from transportation and infrastructure needs, because we do know that next week there's going to be, like I think Congresswoman Williams said, about two-day meetings around infrastructure and projects. So we have a lot of them that we've submitted, and we remain optimistic about those being funded. I just want to be clear. So you're saying between water and sewer, Alone, you're looking at a $300 million in, in, yes, in infrastructure upgrades? Yes. So between water, sewer, and stormwater combined, we have over $326 million in need of repairs or infrastructure needs that we are addressing as we can. Um, we can't fee our way out of it. There's absolutely no way to raise that kind of money with, through fees. But we have an amazing water and sewer director who has actually looked at all of our that entire system, the age, and knows where we need to respond immediately. And have we have a five-year plan. And through, you know, the GFA loan, through um, the capital improvement funds that we allocate ourselves, through earmarks and through the infrastructure plan, I feel that we are definitely in a, in a, on a path to be able to start addressing or continue to address, let me just say that, we, we still address them through our um, capital improvement plan. But this is going to give us additional money, as well as the American Rescue Plan. Let's talk about President Biden's infrastructure legislation, because as of right now, uh, the Republicans have not budged on the total funding amount. President Biden has actually stopped the negotiations with Republicans and now is going to work with a bipartisan group in Congress to try to get this deal done. How optimistic are you? that something can be reached here that both parties will be happy with. 
I am extremely optimistic that some type of deal can be reached, and I'm even more optimistic that communities like East Point are will be given priority in whatever deal is reached because of the president's commitment. Um, Secretary Buttigieg, I've also um, been on a, a meeting with Secretary Regan of EPA. All of their, they, they are absolutely committed to equity and addressing issues in communities like ours. So regardless, whatever deal is reached, I feel confident that East Point and cities like East Point will absolutely be able to benefit from what is passed. Let's talk about transit for a moment because East Point is part of the ATL, which is a 13-county regional approach to improving transit and mobility. What is your vision for the city of East Point in terms of transit? What would you like to see? Light rail? Do you need more buses? For us, having MARTA in the heart of our downtown um, and a a very thriving MARTA station, I think we are definitely poised and, and have an asset from a transportation perspective. Um, as a region, the South Fulton um, mayors in South Fulton area, we've been talking about light rail or bus rapid transit. Um, you know, there are different areas or different ideas that have been presented to us as well as PRT. So there's kind of like this, if you'd have something similar to the um, train that takes people to the airport hotels in the area, um, that are close to the airport, the little people mover, maybe extending something like that. So we've been having conversations and really thinking about the future of transportation, right? And and how do we use these opportunities to position ourselves for just that? But that being said, how will you try and position the city of East Point to make sure you all are part of this conversation, that you aren't lost when it comes to this regional overhaul, this regional approach to more transit options? And so we are continuing to make sure that we're strengthening our relationships and conversations with MARTA. Um, the South, MARTA actually shared at our recent South Fulton Municipal Association Mayor's Meeting. Uh, we are working together as a South Fulton region um, of cities to really talk about, and we have a South Fulton Comprehensive Transit Plan that we prepared that has a number of projects for each city, um, but that at least gives a position of these are the the, the, the different types of transit projects that we are looking at for each city. Um, a lot of it, one of them is making sure, again, as I said, um, Main Street, which is Highway 29, it goes all the way down to Palmetto, um, focusing on making sure that there's bus, um, there are bus shelters, there are um, bus access um, throughout that corridor, um, but also looking at light rail and potential you know, bus rapid transit, like different options to make sure that we are ready to create a South Fulton um, that is ready and ripe for economic development that we know is absolutely on the way and it actually is coming as we speak. Finally, Mayor, the recent census revealed the city of East Point, your population is just under 35,000 with an average medium household income of about 41,000 and a 24% poverty rate and an employment rate that was nearly around 63%. When you hear these numbers, Madam Mayor, what story do these numbers tell or don't tell for that matter? And what concerns you? So what the what it tells me is that there has been improvement. So our the number of households experiencing poverty in the city of East Point within the last um, couple of years was as high as 28%. So now it's 24%. And I'm not saying that that is okay, mm-hmm. but there's a downward trend. And so I am committed and we're committed to all East Pointers. And so we it tells, a, tells me a story of opportunity, right? Those are definitely opportunities for us to continue to make sure we're supporting our residents holistically, um, to make sure that we're attracting, we have to attract development into the city that is a win-win for the city. Um, we have to be people focused. And so what do I mean by that? We have a number of workforce development programs that we actually um, run outside of our city annex building. We have a partnership with Amazing Stories Foundation and Rob Hardy, and we're in season three of having um, participants go through this program to learn become TV and film apprentices. And we have 100% placement rate through that program. We recently had Construction Ready um, provide workforce development training um, at our site as well. And they have over, I believe it's 85 or 90% placement rate. We partner with Strive ATL for logistics training. and have a high placement rate and these um, workforce development programs are actually located in our building that is directly across the street from our public housing 
developments, Martell Homes and right around the corner from Herd Homes. Uh, we also received a, a EPA workforce development grant of a, a little over 130000 from the environmental, Federal Environmental Protection Agency. That's going to help us train people for the future of work, right, and make sure that we're making sure that our residents have access. And as we are becoming very attractive and, and businesses like Fortune 500 companies like Microsoft are choosing East Point, it's critically incumbent upon us to even ensure that in those deals there are community benefits. So we're excited about that opportunity. And, you know, Microsoft has shared the infrastructure that they have in place for community engagement. And so there's been a little concern, though, around the power provider choice, um, mm -hmm. because when a company comes in that large and is going to use a lot of power as a data center, there is an option. Um, the Georgia law indicates that there, that there's an opportunity for cities to be able to be it or not cities, power companies to be able to be it um, and be competitive in supplying that need and meeting that need, that power supply need. And so um, at, we hadn't had the opportunity to submit a bid. And so we were quite concerned after a conversation we had on last Friday. And so we sent a letter signed by myself and the city manager to the CEO, CEO Nadella of Microsoft on Monday, as well as the diversity and inclusion officer, Lindsay, Lindsay Ray McIntyre to express our concern and to share the demographics of our cities and to share the opportunity in our city and that, you know, we feel like we absolutely are able to competitively meet the needs of, of Microsoft and even have been selected as the provider of choice over Georgia Power and other EMCs. And basically we're really saying, you know, this is an opportunity for Microsoft to lead the way um, in equity and, and show how while industrial uses come into communities of color that can be more equitable in ensuring that, you know, that benefits to the community are there. We have infrastructure in the ground on this site to be able to provide power to this site. And so I'm happy to say that we've been given that opportunity to submit a bid as of yesterday. But as of right now, and I don't think maybe a lot of listeners don't know this, but who is your major utility provider in the city of East Point? So we provide our own power. It's called East Point Power. So we mm -hmm. are a MEAC city, the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, which is owned by about 40, I think it's 49 cities. We're one of those owners. And so we have our own power company. We are a full service city. So we provide water, power, um, electric power, um, the stormwater tank. We're full service. And so we actually are a power company, but Georgia Power is also a power company in this area, right? and other EMCs can provide power. And so um, we initially were not, didn't feel or had been informed that they were close to reaching a decision on who would provide the power and we hadn't been given the opportunity to bid. And so, you know, understanding that that to me was an equity issue, right? A systemic mm -hmm. equity issue. We sent, we sent a letter to um, the CEO and diversity inclusion officers that what better opportunity to show Microsoft's commitment to equity than to ensure that this process was equitable and that we absolutely had opportunity to bid because we had been trying to reach out to make that happen. Um, and when we had the conversation with the energy um, group at Microsoft, it sounded like maybe the train had already left the track, but I we don't give up. So we were like, okay, because sometimes the organization, the people at the top don't really are not aware of what's happening. So we were like, well, let's make sure that the CEO and diversity inclusion officer are aware of the potential inequity for this proposed site in the city of East Point. And after sending that letter on Monday, we received communication on yesterday that we would be able to, um, you know, have a presentation shared by Microsoft on their power supply needs and then be given an opportunity to submit a competitive bid. And I am confident that we will definitely be able to competitively meet the needs of Microsoft and exceed their expectations because, we, again, we've been selected as a provider of choice over Georgia Power and other ANCs in, in several different bids. So, Madam Mayor, City of East Point, with some breaking news here, the City of East Point is bidding to be the power provider for that new Microsoft data center which will be located in East Point. From the city of East Point, Mayor Dina Holiday Ingram, thank you so much for taking the time as always. We really appreciate it. Keep us informed on how those negotiations with Microsoft are going. 
Will do. I'll absolutely keep you posted. And thank you so much for the opportunity again. I am honored to be able to be with you on Closer Look and look forward to continuing to engage and keep you informed. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Question, exactly how many face masks have you or the entire household used since last year? And remember the rush to purchase the official N95 mask? Where have all those masks gone? And for the millions still in use, not just here in North America, but the entire globe, where will those masks end up? Laura Parker is a senior staff writer at National Geographic. She covers climate change and oceans and recently authored How to Stop Discarded Face Masks from Polluting the Planet. Laura, welcome to Closer Look. Thanks for taking the time. Let's begin here because often the biggest culprit to pollution, not only in landfills and waterways, is plastic. You wrote in your piece, the tally for face masks is nearly twice that. $129 billion a month. That translates into 3 million face masks used per minute. Laura, that is quite revealing. How are these numbers tallied? Yeah, those are pretty dramatic numbers. When the pandemic began a year ago, or 14 months ago, we weren't really sure what the impact was going to be on using PPE. And I'm not sure anyone realized at the front end how long it would go long on and how how much PPE uh, was going to be involved. And in the time since then, there's there's now a whole library of studies that have been put together about that calculate face masks, other PPE gloves uh, is another one in some cases in certain countries. And so that those things are now being published and we're sort of getting a look at really horrifyingly large numbers. And Laura, let's get some clarity for our listeners because to your knowledge, are any of the disposable masks recyclable? There are exceptions to every rule, but I would say generally, no, they're not. They mm. The instructions from most places, especially in the United States, is to dispose of your mask and your gloves in your garbage bag, which would go into landfill and seal it up. Don't just throw it in, a, in the bin because they're lightweight and they can, they can escape and be carried by the wind. If you put it in your recycling bin, it will more likely gum up the stream, uh, get caught in the equipment, and they'll have to sort it out. They're not recyclable. And do we know if burning the mask, if that is a, I think I know the answer is, if that is a environmentally safe practice that could be helpful? Um, Probably not. Yeah. And I don't know of places, maybe in, in developing nations uh, where a lot of trash sometimes gets burned uh, in domestic households, that might go in there. And I don't, I am unaware of any uh, close looks uh, by analysts as to whether that's being done and in what, in what amounts. But I think as a general rule of thumb, we could say that's a bad idea. 
And has any nation, you, you just talked about some nation, but has any nation, to your knowledge, devised a, a plan, not for only collecting all these masks, but then what to do with them? No, not that I'm aware of. It, they need to be disposed of as waste in your household waste that goes to the landfill. The landfills, but Laura, we also know these masks are showing up in our waterways, sewers, in the ocean. Is it time now to really start focusing on this? I mean, we know that, look, we still are encouraging people to wear masks. We know that they're the importance of it, not just the mask, but other PPE. But is now the critical time to start trying to figure out how do we deal with this? Because it is, if it hasn't already, gotten to a point where it is a hazard. It is a pollution hazard. That's right. And I think the fact that you go out every day on your walk or shopping or whatever, and you see them lying in the street and in the gutter is a real indication of what we're facing. And on one level, it's frustrating and maddening because these masks are there in those locations for one reason, that's because the person who wore it dropped it. And if you're out and about and you take off your mask or you want to discard your mask, dispose it in the proper place. You know, you're not walking around the world or the, uh, your neighborhood or something with your household waste and dropping it all, all along the path as you go, uh, clean up your mask. That's a pretty simple uh, instruction. It's pretty easy to understand. And it's frustrating that uh, there are so many masks that are out there. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Laura Parker. She's a senior staff writer at National Geographic. She covers climate change and oceans. And we're talking about what's going to happen with all those discarded face masks. And is there a way to stop them from polluting the planet? And Laura, you write, it's not just masks. It's gloves, wipes, as you point out, are made from multiple plastic fibers. And again, also not recyclable. That's correct. And I would make the, say the same thing about all PPE needs to be disposed of properly in a bag that is uh, sealed or tied up so that it doesn't get loose. Are environmental groups, are they starting to tackle this issue? Are we starting to have this conversation anywhere in any agency about what to do now, starting the initiatives to collect these masks? That's an interesting question. A lot of the focus of plastic waste, as you know, has been has evolved around a conversation. Are we producing too much plastic? Are there types of plastic packaging that maybe could be reduced and there would be less packaging, so on and so forth? And I think that really is in a, in a separate category from masks that are in a pandemic that we all hope will is on a decline and receding. And at some point in the future, um, the world will not be masked up and having to walk around uh, with PPE. And and so while there's a lot of attention being pointed to the problem of PPE in terms of how just the volume that's been produced, that it is, they are disposable items and it add to plastic waste to the accumulation of it. I'm not uh, seeing conversations about, well, we need to make masks in a different way or we, you know, the kind of conversations that are made that are occurring about a, a piece of, let's say, for example, uh, plastic packaging that is, you know, you buy an object and it's wrapped in a filmy thing, which is put inside a plastic container, but which is put inside another plastic container. And so the question becomes, do we really need this much packaging? Mm -hmm. You are not seeing that kind of conversation occur around PPE. Laura, we should note, as you pointed out, these items, the masks, gloves, wipes, what have you, they also pose a threat to wildlife. Yes, there was a, a study recently that cataloged the kinds of things that are happening. Birds have been tangled up. They get tangled up in the loops that go over your ears. Mm -hmm. um, there have been birds that have taken the mask part of the mask to use in nest building these are all one-offs, you know, there'll be examples of an animal, a fox, a squirrel, and so forth. Uh, there was a fish that got documented, and I think there were photos on the internet of a fish that managed to get inside a glove and, and could not escape. And 
these are kind of getting attention now because we haven't seen that kind of thing before because the pandemic is, is even though it's uh, we've been doing it for what seems like forever, mm-hmm. it hasn't been that long. And I would point out that uh, let's not forget that animals and, and marine animals and wildlife have been getting entangled in the usual plastic waste for a very long time with very heartbreaking and tragic, sad results. So if seeing it, animals stuck in PPE serves as a reminder that we have a general problem with plastic litter floating around out there uh, and trapping animals, um, then maybe that's a, a good message. And Laura, as we wrap up, what's next for you and your reporting on all of this? You report on so many different areas as it relates to climate change and the environment. Are you going to stay on this topic and follow up? National Geographic is has uh, been committed to writing about plastic pollution as a pretty big topic. Uh, there's a lot of interest in it on, in the part of the environmental community. It's not as an issue going to go away anytime soon. It's only really going to get worse. Uh, the numbers that have come out in the last year is that if we cannot get our arms around this and find some solutions, the amount of plastic waste in the oceans will triple by 2040. So yes, we will uh, keep paying attention. Laura Parker is a senior staff writer at National Geographic. Laura, thank you so much for your piece. Yes, it's been nice talking with you. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Earlier this year, the Smyrna City Council approved the hiring of a new police chief. It was someone quite familiar. Keith Zegot started his law enforcement career with the city of Smyrna back in 1991. He left in 2006. You'll hear why in a moment. As we continue our ongoing conversations with area police chiefs, we welcome Chief Zegot to the program. Chief, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it for having me. It's an honor. Let's begin here. Earlier this year, researchers with the National Commission on COVID-19 and Criminal Justice revealed data on 34 cities, including Atlanta, and it found homicide rates, for example, were 30 percent higher in 2020 compared to 2019. And I'm wondering, Chief, if you've had a chance to examine the city of Smyrna's violent crime statistics from 2019 to last year. So fortunately in Smyrna, the crime rate has stayed pretty consistent. Do you agree with the theory that whether it's Atlanta or or other parts of the nation that the pandemic has contributed to a rise in the spike in crime, particularly in in certain urban areas or or just in general? I think it has probably contributed somewhat. I don't think that all of the crime issues can be uh, directly uh, attributed to COVID. And, and everyone going through the pandemic. Uh, but certainly, and something that we saw early on in the pandemic and were concerned about were domestic-related crimes. Chief, let's uh, shift for a moment, because as mentioned, you were newly appointed as Smyrna's chief of police. You had been in Sandy Springs for a while, and I think I read that you said, it's good to be back, good to be home. Why'd you want to come back? Sure. Well, there, there was a uh, certainly a, a great degree of familiarity with, with Smyrna. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I started my career here in 1991 and spent almost 15 years here before I went to Sandy Springs. And uh, in speaking with uh, the city administrator and looking at everything that had been accomplished in the past few years, um, I saw a great opportunity to come back and continue the philosophy and the idea of, of, of building community-oriented policing and, and building that philosophy not only within the department but w- within the community as well. How would you assess that chapter of law enforcement for you and how it is helping or preparing you in this new role? 
So for, for the past 15 years, and, and one of the reasons that I went to Sandy Springs was uh, it, it was such a unique opportunity to, to be a part of building something from the beginning. And uh, when, when we started the Sandy Springs Police Department, we started with a clean slate. So we, we built the department over there on best practices, uh, certainly best practices at the time in 2006, um, certainly as, as things progressed in law enforcement. Um, we didn't have a history at, at that police department that we had to go back and correct. We were building everything from the start. And so we, we didn't have existing policies that we had to go back and, and review. We were building everything uh, from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And those experiences, uh, I believe, have helped me develop uh, and, and view things a little bit differently than maybe someone that's, that's been at a department for that, that is an established police department. Um, one of the things that I, I always touted over over in Sandy Springs was that, again, the department was built on best practices, and uh, again, we just didn't we didn't have a hundred years of history that we had to look at and old policies and procedures. We every everything was new. Chief, as you know, last summer's protests stemming from the killing of George Floyd, the killing of Breonna Taylor. You know, this has been a long, continuous movement that goes back further than last year in terms of policing in black and brown communities. Have you had a chance to examine the Smyrna Police Department's approach to policing in specific communities and whether there's a need to implement new training or the need to amend standard operating procedures, anything of that nature? So one one of the things that um, I I have told the leadership that's already in place here that I'm very impressed with is the diversity of the police department. Uh, the 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 men and women of of the Smyrna Police Department represent the community, and uh, it, it's a it's a very diverse group. As a matter of fact, I I met one young young patrolman that um, he he he's Latino uh, and. He grew up in one of the apartment complexes here in Smyrna, and um, you know, having individuals in the department like that that truly know the community, they truly know what it's like to live here. Uh, I think makes a makes a huge difference. It, it, it's it's a significant difference uh, within the police department. Uh, one of the things that we're doing now is is we do have a group uh, from around throughout the police department in, in-house that's reviewing our policies and procedures. And that was one of the first things that I wanted to do was to come in and look at procedures, look at policies, where can we make changes, where can we make improvements, and uh, you know, get, get those changes done so that we can better serve the community because ultimately that's, we're here to serve the community. That's, that's what this, this is all about. But besides having a diverse police force, how do you define effective community policing? What does that look like? Or what should it look like through your lens? What I think it should look like is open dialogue between the police department and the community that it serves. Uh, we, we should, you know, we're all human beings. We're all fallible. So no one's no one's perfect, and no no organization is going to be perfect. But I believe that having that open communication with with the citizens that we serve, and having those lines of communication open, uh, is 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 the first step in making sure that that we're serving the community the way that they want to be served, and that they're getting the level of service that that they want from their police department. I want to get to the officers in just a moment, but I do want to continue with one more horrific trend, and that is these mass shootings and killings, which seem to occur with more frequency. Obviously, this year, the horrific killings at three Asian-owned spas in our region. So here's what we know. In 2020, and this is data from the FBI, there were over 600, what's been defined, mass shootings in this nation. Chief, what do you make of that? 
So I think we have, I, I think it's, it's not one particular issue. Um, and, and, and that's, that's kind of the thing, you know, every, every group wants to focus on one particular thing. It's either, it's either guns or it's mental health or it's, um, you know, whatever, whatever that cause is, is what, what that group, particular group focuses on. Uh, I think that one of the things that we have to look at is, is, or one of the things that we have to do in this country is we, we have to look at, at each of these instances from a holistic standpoint. What, what is, where is it that, that society is, is, or these individuals in society are breaking down? And, and what is it that we can do as a society to, to keep these people from taking these actions? Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a tough conversation, and I certainly don't have the answers as a, as a police chief, but I know that, that in many of these instances, there are red flags that friends, coworkers, families – see. And I think one of the things that we can do is uh, make sure that people are aware of the resources that they can reach out to and, and make those resources readily available. Again, whether it's, whether, whether it's mental health, uh, you know, getting information out to people on, on who they can call, where they can go, uh, is definitely going to, I think, help in maybe limiting some of these uh, some of these acts that that take place. If you're just joining us, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott, and I'm in conversation with Smyrna's new police chief, Keith Zegots. Chief, let me get your thoughts on this because this week, Atlanta's chief of police, Rodney Bryant, talked about how his department is 400 officers down from what would be a normal or target number of officers. How much of a priority is recruiting and retaining officers going to be for you and also making sure that they have the resources they need as well? Sure. Well, so, so in, in all the talks of, of police reform and, and everything that we, we can be doing better, and there are plenty of things that we can do better, uh, one of the things that I fail that, or one of the things that I think that people fail to look at is the background and recruiting part of, of police work. Who are we hiring? How good of a job are we doing when we look at someone's background and making sure that we get the right people in this profession? Um, that's, that's a big priority for me. Uh, we, we did a little bit of rearranging here in our department uh, just a few weeks ago, or a couple of weeks ago, I've only been here for a little over five. So, uh, but we created a, a background and recruiting officer position where that's that officer's primary job is recruiting new people, doing the background checks, really uh, digging into to applicants' backgrounds, so that we are hiring the right people. And if if you hire the right people and and People get into the job for the right reasons. Hopefully, they stick around for a long time. And um, it's it's been a tough it's been a tough year for younger officers. We've certainly seen a lot of police uh, police officers leave the profession. Um, but there are also a lot of men and women that have have stuck it out and want to do better, uh, want want to do a good job for the community, and and truly truly want to serve. Finally, Chief, how are you prioritizing your vision for the Smyrna Police Department? Well, the first thing that uh, I did when I came in here and the first thing that I I told everyone here that I wanted to do was listen. I want to listen to the men and women in the department. I want to listen to the community. I want to hear and and understand what, what is expected both internally and externally. Um, I, I think that's one of the most important things that uh, a new leader coming into an organization can do is is seek to understand the culture within, seek to understand the community, and then make decisions based on what 
what you see as, as being needed. Um, so that's certainly one of the first things that, that I've been doing and, and meeting with officers individually and in groups, uh, meeting with supervisors here, uh, both one-on-one and in groups, and uh, getting out uh, to different, trying to get out to different community groups. Um, you know, some groups now, uh, as we come out of COVID, people are starting to meet more in person, which is going to, uh, I think, help a lot. Um, you know, going through the pandemic and not having uh, those one-on-one personal connections, uh, you know, I think that hurts relationships. I, I think it's always it's always better to be able to see someone and see their uh, face and, and whether they're smiling or frowning, rolling their eyes, whatever the case may be, I always think that that's that's certainly a huge part of of the communication process. And so as we continue to come out of COVID and and we continue to have more opportunities to to meet with groups of people one-on-one and face-to-face, I think that's going to improve uh, everything that we do. Summer is practically here, Chief. It's going to be a different summer than it was last year, obviously. Perhaps more return to normalcy. Some folks will be out and about. Um, You plan to have as many officers out in the community based on everything we just talked about and how you feel about effective community policing. Absolutely. Um, You know, we we are going to have a commitment to uh, not only getting out into the community to, to homeowners meetings and, and group meetings that, that we can go to and, and talk to folks, but uh, making an effort to, to get out into some of the smaller pockets of the community and, and make sure that, uh, you know, officers get out of their cars and, and we get out and walk around and get to know some people and, and uh, make sure that people start to feel more comfortable uh, coming out and approaching one another. Smyrna's new police chief, Keith Zegots. Chief, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear on the program. Just send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcasts. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.